Turn with me in your Bibles, if you will, to Mark's Gospel, chapter 6. Tonight we're going to be studying verses 45 through 52. Why don't we just go ahead and read those together, and then we'll kind of backtrack and pick it up a little bit. It says, Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he sent the multitude away. And when he had sent them away, he departed to the mountain to pray. Now when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea, and would have passed by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost, and cried out, for they all saw him and were troubled. And immediately he talked with them and said to them, Be of good cheer, it is I. Do not be afraid. Then he went up into the boat to them, and the wind ceased. And they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled. For they had not understood about the loaves, because their heart was hardened. Now, that, of course, brings up what we studied last week. Remember when Jesus was out in a kind of a deserted place and uh, had been there a while. In fact, he had kind of gotten alone with his disciples who had come back after they had been sent out two by two to minister the gospel and heal the sick and cast out demons and all. And they came back and they were emotionally and physically spent. And Jesus said, hey, it's time to kind of get away from everyone and come alone with me and we'll go to a deserted place and, you know, basically have some fellowship and some R&R. And that's what they did. But the multitude saw them going across the Sea of Galilee towards this place. And it's not that far across the Sea of Galilee by the northern end. They're about maybe six or seven miles across. So they could see where they were going. So the crowd kind of ran around the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. And, and you know how it is when you've got a bunch of people running somewhere. People want to know what's going on, where are you going. And everyone just kind of, you just kind of pick up more and more people as they went by the various towns along the way. And so by the time Jesus and his disciples got there, there was a great multitude. And uh, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep having no shepherd. So he took the time to minister to them. But now it was getting late in the afternoon and they were out in a deserted place. And the disciples said, Lord, you know, you better send them away into town so they can find some food to eat and some lodging for the night because we're out here in nowhere. You know, this is, uh, you know, in the sticks. Uh, it's a deserted place. And Jesus said to them, you give them something to eat. And you know the story we studied how that Philip said, Lord, you know, 200 denarii isn't enough to give each one of them a little bit. I mean, there was about, it says 5,000 men, but there was women and children also present. There had to be upwards of 20,000 people out there. It's quite a crowd. And uh, Andrew found one little guy with a sack lunch that was willing to share what he had. It was just five little barley crackers and two small pickled fish. Andrew said, but what is that, you know, with so many? And so Jesus had them all sit down and he blessed and broke the food and gave it to his disciples and they distributed it. And everyone ate. It says they were stuffed. They were glutted. They were, uh, they were really uh, stuffed and, and, and they could eat no more. And they gathered up the remains and there were 12 baskets full. And I'm sure he gave one basket to each of the 12 disciples to remind them of the miracle he had done. Now John tells us something that Mark doesn't tell us that's very interesting. In fact, it kind of sets up this next section in a way. He said that after Jesus performed this miracle that the people wanted to take him by force and make him their king. And yet he would not permit it. He sent them away and he got alone by himself again. 
because he knew their hearts. You see, he knew that they only wanted him to be king so that he could provide for them great feasts with very small amounts of food, that he could heal their sick and so on and so forth, in a sense kind of establish a welfare state where they wouldn't really have to work because their king would supernaturally produce as much food as they needed. They wanted to make him king not because they wanted to submit to his lordship, not because they wanted to serve him, but because they wanted to use him. And we have to ask ourselves a very serious question. Do we use the Lord? Do we use him when we want comfort in our sorrows? Or when we want strength in our difficulties? Or when we want peace in the midst of our struggles? Or when we're sick and we need a healing? Suddenly, Jesus is the most important person in the world. And we talk with him, we walk with him, we pray, you know, get back to prayer, get back to the Bible, get back to church. Why? Because he has something we want. But when he comes to us and makes a demand of our lives and offers us a cross to carry and asks us to follow him in selfless, sacrificial service to others, suddenly, for many Christians, all of a sudden they're indignant. They're resentful, even hostile at times. I mean, they feel put out, uh, unfairly treated by the Lord. And you'll hear them all the time as they're going through some kind of a adversity. I can't believe what God is doing in my... I can't believe He's making me go through... I mean, and you hear these kinds of things, and it's just a very sad testimony. We have to ask ourselves, honestly, do we use Jesus? Do we only love Him for what He does for us or what He can do for us if we say well sometimes I think I do use him sometimes when things are going well I have to admit I'm not as committed to him as I know I should be I'm not walking closely after him I'm not taking up my cross and living sacrificially as he has asked me to or commanded me to but when a trial comes man we sure are on our knees then aren't we Hey, we got to get back to church. Man, i gotta, God, I got to ask the Lord to help me with this thing. and uh, Or I'm sick and I need a healing. And all of a sudden, we're real faithful. And if that's the case, then we're really no better than this crowd. Because that was exactly the attitude of this multitude here. They only wanted Jesus for what they could get out of him. That's the only reason they followed him. And he would have none of it. He wasn't there to be their magic genie, I suppose. Or their uh, Santa Claus figure that he would just give to them all the gifts and things that they wanted. Uh, he demanded submission and loyalty and dying to self, if you want to be his disciple. I mean, think about it. What is really involved in following after Jesus? And this should be a very simple and basic question for all Christians, but a lot of Christians, I'll tell you the truth, if you were to really ask them that, what is really involved in following Jesus? What did Jesus mean when he said, come and follow me? I mean, if you really ask yourself that question, you'll have to, to see that Jesus talked about a cross, didn't he? I mean, the cross is basic. I mean, it's foundational to our whole Christian faith. And yet, how many churches today are preaching a crossless gospel and a crossless commitment to Jesus Christ? And that is no commitment. That is no gospel. Jesus talked about taking up your cross and following after him if you want to be his disciple. He warned that you must count the cost first before you make any kind of shallow, uh, off-the-cuff kind of a 
uh, commitment to follow him just kind of uh, on the spur of the moment. You need to sit down and think it through because it's a very important commitment you're entering into. And we all know as Christians that walking with Jesus is not always going to mean clear skies and smooth sailing, is it? In fact, quite the opposite. Oftentimes when we follow after Jesus, many storms are going to come across our path. And I think that's the major or the main spiritual point the Holy Spirit was making through this story. That you know what? As disciples of Christ, we are not exempt from storms. And when I say storms, I'm talking about any kind of adversity, heartaches, trials, pain, anything like that we would call a storm in the spiritual or allegorical sense. We know as Christians we're not exempt from those things. As a matter of fact, as we're going to see, God purposely sends us into the storms. And I'll tell you this, it's how you react. First of all, it's understanding the fact that you will encounter storms along the way in following Jesus. I think that's the most basic and yet the first point in becoming a true disciple that I recognize day one he hasn't promised me any kind of primrose path any kind of easy life I really think some Christians feel that when they gave their heart to Christ he guaranteed them a kind of a sunshine primrose kind of a walk in life the rest of the no that's not how it works at all and understanding that first of all and then how we respond to those storms will determine a great deal if we learn from them or if they wind up crushing us and causing us to fall away from him. It's very important that we understand storms will come and how we react to them is also very important because God will send them. People say, well, why does God send storms? He's got his reasons. We'll see a few of those tonight. Here's something to think about, though. Jesus sent them across the Sea of Galilee knowing the storm was coming. You know that? Jesus purposely sent them into this storm. Why? Well, Mark gives us some indication at the end there, possibly, probably, to see if they had learned any lessons in faith from the feeding of the 5,000. It says immediately after Jesus fed the 5,000, he made them get into a boat to cross the Sea of Galilee. And God will often do that with us. In fact, in our Christian lives, they consist of a series of tests disguised as storms designed by God to stretch our faith and to raise us to new spiritual heights. Understand this, though, that Jesus told his disciples to go across the Sea of Galilee knowing that the storm was coming. He knew what he was sending them into. He did it purposely. And then he went to the top of the mountain by himself to pray. That's what Mark tells us. Now, when the disciples got about halfway across the Sea of Galilee, suddenly gale-like winds came out of nowhere. The waves began to toss and turn, and they swelled and all. And when I was in Israel this past November, we went across the Sea of Galilee, and it was real windy that day. And it was kind of interesting, kind of neat, because everywhere we went, one of the pastors did a little teaching. And as we were going across the Sea of Galilee, they turned to this section and it was John's gospel, same, same section we're learning in Mark's though. And it was kind of interesting, just, it was just very windy. And the waters were very choppy. Nothing, I'm sure, like it was when the disciples were going across. But you kind of got a little bit of the impression of just a tiny bit of what they must have been experiencing. And so they got about halfway. Suddenly these gale-like winds came out of nowhere. And they do kind of sweep down through the valley 
suddenly without warning and all of a sudden what was once a very calm day turns in rather quickly to a very very severely windy stormy day and they were out there the, the wind was blowing the waves had swelled the boat, boat was being tossed to and fro and they were literally fighting for their lives now it says here in matthew's gospel that they were tossed by the sea the greek word means tortured or tormented by the sea uh, this was no small storm this was something that was exceedingly fierce and terrifying i mean these guys were struggling or so they thought for their very lives i mean it was nothing to be taken lightly these guys were fighting for their lives and yet i have to give them some credit if you think about it they could have just let the boat go and let it be driven by the wind back to where it came from probably would have blown it right over to where they had left from right back where they started from but they didn't do that they fought the wind because jesus had given them a command and they were trying to obey what he had said and i think there's a good principle there because i think too often when the lord impresses on our hearts to do something for him or go somewhere begin a ministry or do something and then the opposition hits the enemy throws a storm our way i think too often we're too prone to too quickly give up turn our backs and run and just go you know just back to where we started just kind of run from the situation instead of persisting in it to do what god has told us to do to get to where god has told us to go and all I think too often we're too prone to run. When things get a little tough, the going gets a little rough, hey, forget this, turn our backs and we take off. At least these guys were fighting, persisting to do what Jesus had commanded them. I have to give them that, you know. They're struggling like crazy to get across the Sea of Galilee because that's what Jesus told them to do. Now, while they were going through this, okay, get the picture. Here's the disciples. They're rowing. They're panicking. They're frantic. They're frazzled. I mean, they're going crazy in the Sea of Galilee. While this is all going on, Jesus, it says, was up on the mountain and he was praying. And I am convinced he was praying for them. See? I'm totally convinced he was up there. He was praying for them. In fact, we know that he could see them struggling on the Sea of Galilee from where he was because this was Passover time it says and during Passover time there was always a full moon because that was linked to the full moon uh, which provided just enough light for Jesus to see them struggling down on the sea he was watching the whole thing you have to understand that he was watching them struggling there on the Sea of Galilee remember that this was a windstorm not a rainstorm with clouds and things you might miss that. You might think, well, gee, how could he see them? It was cloudy. It was raining. No, it wasn't a rainstorm. It was a windstorm, which is quite common in that part of the world. And it was a full moon out. So the wind would not have affected that. And that provided enough light for Jesus to see them where he was sitting on top of the mountain. He saw them struggling down on the sea below him. So Jesus was sitting there watching the whole thing, which is kind of amusing to me, kind of fascinating to me. He's sitting there watching these guys struggling like crazy. And people would see that and they would say, well, you know, that, that's cruel. And I say, no, that's controlled. Because this was a controlled test, as is everything the Lord puts us through. He was in complete control. 
I mean, he had his hand on everything. Can you imagine the conversation going on in the boat on the Sea of Galilee among these disciples who were frantic, panicking, rowing for their very lives? I mean, they were probably, I would imagine, were saying things like, what a time for Jesus not to be here. If only the Lord was here now. Oh my God, why did he have to leave us at this point? All the while, though, he was watching the whole thing. He had everything in perfect control. Now, why does God direct us into storms? And I'm going to give you just a few things that I see from Scripture that why God uses storms. And again, when I talk about storms, I'm talking about any trial, any tribulation, any adversity, any, any hardship that we go through. These folks that we're going to talk about faced literal storms. We face spiritual storms in a sense. You know, times of trial, adversity, hardship, pain. But God uses those things in our lives just like he used these storms in these people's lives for different reasons. God has a purpose in it. The Lord never puts us through anything without having a purpose for what he's doing. And I think one of the first purposes that God will use storms for is first of all for correction. For correction. Remember Jonah, how that God told him to go somewhere and God told him to do something. He told him to go to Nineveh and to preach to the Ninevites. They had 40 days to repent, otherwise they were going to be wiped out by God. Jonah hated the Ninevites. They were Assyrians. The Assyrians were ruthless, bloodthirsty, and had put God's people through all kinds of horrible things. And Jonah wanted them to get wiped out, basically. He didn't want them to be spared. But God was gracious, and God says, Jonah, you're my prophet, you're my spokesman. You get over to Nineveh, and you tell those people they've got 40 days, otherwise comes destruction. And Jonah says, I'm not going. I'm not. So he got on a ship, and he headed in the exact opposite direction. Now, Jonah was being disobedient to what the Lord had said. And when we're disobedient, willfully disobedient to what the Lord has said, he will oftentimes bring into our lives a storm or some kind of trial or adversity to correct us, you know, to get us back to the place where he wants us to be, that place of obedience. And so God sent Jonah a rather nasty storm, and uh, the guys on the ship were fighting for their lives, the ship that Jonah was on. Jonah knew why the storm had come. He said, look, the storm is because of me. I've been disobedient to God. You just throw me overboard and everything will, will be cool. I mean, you guys will be spared. Uh, I deserve to die. And so they said, sure, well, fine, throw them overboard. They weren't about to argue with him at that point. And sure enough, everything got calm and a big fish came and swallowed Jonah. And God gave the first submarine ride over to the place he wanted him to be, the, the great fish or the whale, whatever it was, vomited Jonah up onto the shore. And he then went to Nineveh reluctantly, persuaded by God, corrected by God through the storm. God will oftentimes use this method to correct us if we're walking in disobedience to what he has said. Now, let me just say this to you. I need to contrast Jonah with Noah, who also found himself in a storm, but not because of any sin of his own. Sometimes we will find ourselves going through storms not because God is correcting us, but because he is dealing with those around us who are living in sin. Noah was, not, was a righteous man. The whole world was wicked around him. And so God told him to build the ark because God was going to wipe out the whole world. And so God caused Noah and his family to enter into the ark. And then the storm came 
but it wasn't the storm that God was putting Noah through because of Noah's disobedience. Noah simply had to, you know, suffer the storm because of the wickedness of those around him. And sometimes that will happen to us as Christians, especially if you're married to an unbeliever who is not living for the Lord. God's trying to get his attention. Oftentimes he will do that through adversity and trial. And because you're married to that person, you're going to go through the storm too. It might be financial. It might be some other thing. But God is trying to get his or her attention, trying to get them to come to him. And because you're married to them, you're connected to them. And so you're going to have to go through the storm just simply by virtue of the fact that you're, you're married to them. It's because of their sin, though, that you're going through the storm. You say, that's not fair. Well, uh, sometimes the Christian life isn't necessarily fair. God says, look, die to self. Uh, I've got to touch them. That means I'm going to have to somehow touch you a little bit with this storm. But the end result is to save them. Don't you want that? Ultimately, of course we do. Maybe sometimes it's a child, a wayward son or daughter that has walked away from God or had never really has accepted the Lord. Now they're living in sin and and, 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 and they're going through some severe thing which affects you because you're their parent, you love them. There's all kinds of things that God, uh, storms that God will use to correct us and those around us. Sometimes like Noah though, we're, the, we're just kind of experiencing some of the fallout of the storm because of somebody else's sin around us. So correction. Also God will use storms for perfection. Remember what Paul said in Romans 8.28. He said, all things work together for good to those that love God, to those that are the called according to His purpose. And then the next verse, verse 29 says, and the purpose that He is up to, that all things are working towards for good, is that He is conforming me into the image of His Son. Now that's the good. I mean, the word good can be a very subjective kind of a, a term. When I say to you, tell me what do you think is good? Well, that could mean all kinds of things to all kinds of people. I think, well, Good for me would be to win the lotto. Or someone else would say, good for me would be to find a husband or a wife or to lose my husband or my wife, I don't, whatever. <laughs> These are all non-Christians, of course. For the Christian, good would be uh, hopefully something a little more sanctified and godly. I would think that Christians would want to answer, well, for me, good would be to be more like Jesus. And that's exactly what God has in mind. That's the good he's up to. And he will use storms our adversity and trials to be the chisel to chisel out from our lives the image of Jesus Christ now God is the sculptor we are the blockheads the lump of marble though you know and adversity is the tool that he will often use to chisel out from our lives that image of Christ to perfect us he will use storms for perfection what did James say he said beloved he said don't grow weary of trials because they're designed to perfect you and complete you. Uh, they're designed to produce patience in you. They're good. God is using them to perfect your walk. So, you know, they're not fun, but the results are really good. So understand that. So perfection is another one. Thirdly, God will use storms for direction. Sometimes God will bring storms into our lives to direct us or to redirect us off some course we're going to somewhere else because God has got a ministry or some purpose for us somewhere that we weren't planning on going, but all of a sudden now our course has been redirected. You weren't planning on changing jobs, 
But God had a ministry for you somewhere else. But see, you weren't looking for another job where that ministry happened to be. So he puts it into your boss's mind to downsize. You find yourself out of work. Now you're looking, see? You're redirected to where he wants you to be. Remember Paul the Apostle, how he was on a ship headed for Rome in Acts chapter 27? And they were on their way to Rome. He was going to stand you know, before Caesar and all. And it was late in the year, and they found themselves caught in a, a hurricane-type wind called Eurachlodon, which kind of blows through that area around that time of the year. It was near the fall. It was in the fall time, and um, and it was pretty bad for about 14 days. I mean, they were throwing over cargo to lighten the ship. They were throwing then over the tackle. They were bounding the ship with ropes to kind of keep it from pulling apart in the waves that they were were constantly beating on the ship for 14 days. They hadn't eaten anything. They were sick. And God spoke to Paul the night before and said, look, he sent an angel actually and reassured them that none of them would be lost and that God was going to spare the entire crew. And the next day they uh, ran aground near the island of Malta in the Mediterranean Sea. They wound up spending the next three months there. And during that time, Paul was able to minister to the, um, the leaders of Malta, the people, and a church was started. And then after winter had passed, spring came, they boarded a ship from Alexandria and finished the journey to Rome. But God used a storm to redirect them, you know, because he had a ministry for Paul on the island of Malta, and they weren't going there, but God has ways of redirecting us through the storms. Be open to storms when they come because maybe God is trying to redirect you. He's trying to give you a whole new ministry opportunity. You're not looking for it and all of a sudden the storm hits and you're thinking, Lord, why am I going through this? God is saying, because I'm taking you somewhere else. I'm redirecting your life. Also, God will use storms for demonstration. You'll never see the power of God manifested so mightily as when you're in the midst of a storm and things look hopeless and suddenly God steps in and does something miraculous see but it's almost like he has to let us go through something so bad so beyond our human capabilities that when he steps in and works the miracle is all the more spectacular and it just wow it just causes us to be focused on him through this incredible demonstration of power I remember when Moses and the children of Israel came out of Egypt. They weren't going through a literal storm, but in a sense, they were in big trouble. They were going through a real trial because here comes the Egyptian army behind them. And they had gone down a corridor where a mountain was now in front of them. And they were, or the Red Sea was on the one side and the mountain in front, mountain on the other side. They were trapped. And the Lord purposely put their backs up against the wall because he wanted to do a miracle but he knew if he didn't box them in and trap them and put their backs up against the wall they would have scattered in every direction and probably never made it to the promised land and never would they have waited to see God work in such a spectacular way and so God will do that he'll put our backs up against the wall and force us to stand still and watch what he's going to do boy is that hard to take especially when it looks like the bottom has dropped out it's hopeless you're doomed, and then God steps in and all of a sudden provides a way where there is no way. It works out this incredible trial, brings the finances in that you never thought you'd see to pay the bills, the mortgage, the collectors are at the door knocking on your door. I mean, I have heard stories 
I had one woman tell me that she had sitting around her kitchen table at one time, because her phone had been disconnected, so they all had to come over to her house, eight or nine different creditors from different companies, and she sat them down there and she apologized that they had no money to pay them with because her husband had been out of work and was looking for a job at that time. And she apologized but said, I'm a Christian and I truly believe God is going to provide the money. I don't believe in filing bankruptcy. I intend to pay you and I'm just trusting the Lord. It was like the next week her husband got some kind of a phenomenal job. They gave him a large sum of money up front to get started because his truck driver needed expense money enough to pay off all the bills and had a little bit left over. I mean, you think, Lord, where am I going here? I'm trapped. There's nowhere. I'm not going anywhere here. I mean, this is, I'm doomed. Where are you going to bring, how are you going to bring the money in, Lord? And God says, trust me. I've got ways that you know, you know nothing about. So for demonstration of God's power. Also for preparation. God will use storms in our lives to prepare us for whatever he has coming down the road in the future. Now, this is a very important thing because God is always working in our lives, building, doing things, and oftentimes we can't see why, but he sees the big picture, and he knows what's coming down the road in a year, we'll say, and so he knows that he better start working on us right now if we're going to be ready and prepared to face whatever it is he's got coming down the road in the horizon. Uh, here, Jesus Christ fed the 5,000, remember? And the disciples learned an incredible lesson in faith through that. And then the storm hit. And Jesus was no doubt hoping some of the lessons they had, they had learned from the feeding of the 5,000 they would have brought into this trial that if Jesus could feed 5,000 or 20,000, actually, he could certainly protect them during a storm. But he was teaching them things. Because remember I said last week, soon he was going to be taken from them, and he needed to grow their faith now more than ever. Because once he had ascended into heaven, and the mantle of responsibility for building the church would fall on their shoulders, they would need to be men of faith. They would need to learn these lessons very well, because the time was coming just down the road when they were going to have to put these lessons and faith into operation. Well, it just so happened a year later in the book of Acts how that God used these guys to feed another 5,000 men. Not a physical dinner or lunch, but a spiritual one. Remember how when in Acts chapter 3 how that Peter and John were coming into the temple to pray and they saw the layman there, 40 years uh, there sitting uh, begging uh, alms and things. And uh, Peter looked at him and said, uh, Hey, pal, look at me. And he looked up at Peter expecting to get something. And Peter said, Silver and gold have I not, but what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Stand up and walk. And he pulled him to his feet, and the guy stood. And he began to walk. He began to run into the temple area and all around. And all the people knew who he was because they saw him sitting there every day for 40 years. And that grew quite a crowd. And they all came out, and this guy was hugging Peter, and they put two and two together, and they began to look at Peter like he was some kind of a god. And Peter stopped and said, wait a minute. Why do you look at us, you men of Israel, as if we, by our own holiness and godliness, caused this man to stand before you whole? I want all of you to know that it was by faith in him 
Jesus Christ and the power that comes from him, that this man has been made well and stands before you. In other words, hey, don't look at me like I did something. Jesus gets the glory. He's the one who has done that. Now let me tell you about him. They began to talk about Jesus and preach to him. And word got out to the chief priests and the Sanhedrin and the Sadducees, the temple police, that these guys were preaching Jesus resurrected from the dead. They sent the temple guards on him because the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection and all. So they took Peter and John into custody. A storm hit. But it says 5,000 men believed. See, They had been fed spiritually and been converted. But then Peter and John were taken off into captivity to stand before the very Sanhedrin that Peter, two months earlier, had stood outside because he was terrified of these guys and denied Jesus three times. Now he goes in before these guys. No longer is he out in the porch cowering he goes right in and he lays it on them and he says look guys you need to get right you've crucified your own messiah you know and he was bold and they marveled at his boldness and they commanded them not to speak anymore in the name of jesus and peter said look hey whether we should obey god or you men you decide but we can't help but speak the things that we have heard and seen and he was really bold about it but it was those lessons in faith that he had learned earlier that had prepared him for other kinds of storms that he would face in his ministry. Not literal storms, but storms of persecution from the Jewish leadership and all. He learned lessons in faith. So God will use many things like this to prepare us. Because I'll tell you what, I don't know what's going to happen to me down the road a year from now. I have no idea what's coming a year from now. But the Lord does. And I'm confident he's already preparing me and you for whatever it is that's coming our way. And he'll use these things, these storms, to do that very thing. To drive us to our knees, draw us close to him and prepare us for whatever it is he's trying to work in our lives. So here were the disciples out in the Sea of Galilee. They're struggling for their lives, or so they thought. Their lives were never really in any danger. We know that. But these poor guys didn't know that. For all intents and purposes, they thought they were struggling for their very lives and all of a sudden it says here comes jesus walking toward them on the top of the water it says here in verse 49 or verse 48 then he saw them straining at rowing for the wind was against them and about the fourth watch of the night he came to them walking on the sea and would have passed them don't let that throw you uh there's a kind of a greek construction here that a lot of commentators believe it's not that he would have passed by them he was walking toward them and wanted to and this is where the greek is kind of interesting wanted to show them his backside in a sense passed by them in the sense of showing him his backside now you say well why well because if you remember when moses said to the lord uh, on mount sinai lord i want to see your face Lord, I can't show you my face, but if you hide in the cleft of the rock, I'll put my hand over you, and I'll walk by you, and you can see my backside, my afterglow, which is a way of revealing God's glory to people. Elijah, or was it Ezekiel, one of the two, same thing. God showed them his backside was a way of revealing his glory. And so, you know, just the Greek construction here, maybe Mark is telling us that Jesus was trying to show these guys something of himself to reveal some glory to them 
that they were ignorant to. And I believe that's what's really going on. We'll see that in a moment. But he comes walking to them on the top of the water. It says here at the fourth watch, of, during the fourth watch of the night, uh, which is between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. That's the fourth watch of the night, between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. Now remember that Jesus sent them out onto the Sea of Galilee before it was even evening. Matthew tells us that he sent them out by themselves to go across the sea. And when evening had come, he was up on the mountain alone. So they had gone across before it was even evening. Now it's between 3 and 6 a.m., which means they had been struggling on that sea for 12 hours. And we're only halfway across. No doubt they were exhausted. Their physical strength was gone. They were no doubt ready to give up. In fact, at this point, I probably think they didn't care if they lived or died. They were probably so tired, so seasick, so exhausted, so at the end of their ropes, I, I almost think that they were feeling like, Lord, kill me, please. Death would be better than what I'm going through right now. And just at the time, I'm convinced, even though the text does not say this directly, just about the time I am convinced they were ready to give up and maybe dive over the side and drown themselves, here comes Jesus walking on the water towards them. Jesus, of course, was watching the whole thing and being God, of course, and knowing the storm was coming, in fact, I'm convinced, sending the storm, not only sending them into the storm, but sending the storm upon them. He knew how much they could handle. He knew how much they couldn't. The Lord knows this. The Bible says that no temptation, and I would imagine this would also pertain to testings, God will not let them crush the life out of us in a sense. He will always only allow us to be tempted by Satan or tested so far, see? And usually what happens is he takes us past the point where we think we can handle it, and yet he knows we can handle more than that. He wants to take us past our human point of resourcefulness, ability. He wants us to come to the end of ourselves because then when he comes to us, when he manifests himself to us, then he gets the glory. Our faith is built and not our self-confidence. So you have to understand, all the way through a trial, we are trying to figure out ways around it, ways to solve it. We're counting on our own resourcefulness. We're putting confidence in self. We do this subconsciously, many of us. We don't even realize we're doing it. We're sitting down and trying to figure out a way out of the trial. And sometimes God will have to really bring such a whopper on us that there's no way out. And he has to bring us to the point where we're totally past human resource, ability, our strength is gone. We're, we've given up all hope, in a sense, from a human standpoint. Then he comes to us, and then he works, because then he's able to do a work of faith in us. See? He doesn't want to build up our resourcefulness or our self-confidence. He wants to build up our faith. And to do that, oftentimes, he has to take us a great deal farther than we think we're capable of going. I think these guys probably felt they had had enough about two or three hours into this whole thing, you know? Twelve hours later. I mean, now they're really past the point of human self-confidence and resourcefulness. And they're ready to die now. And then he comes. And then he manifests himself. Then he works it out. And he gets the glory. See, that's why the Bible says, 
It's not by power nor by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. That's such an important truth, you know. It's not by power. It's not by our strength or our might that God's work gets done or that we accomplish the things that God has told us to do. Jesus said, go into the boat and go across the Sea of Galilee. But they weren't going to do it in their own strength. And you say, well, well, why? I mean, why did he use that to teach them this? Because in a very short time, he was going to be taken from them. And they had to learn that their strength wasn't adequate to do the smallest things he commanded them to do, let alone the biggest things. They needed to trust in him, to rely on his strength. So Jesus came to them in the midst of the storm, and he said here in verse 50, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. Now here they were, tired, exhausted, weak, sick, and suddenly here comes Jesus walking to them on the water. They thought he was a ghost at first. And he says to them, be of good cheer. Don't be afraid. It is I. Actually, interestingly, in the Greek, he says, I am. He says, be of good cheer. Do not be afraid. Why? Because I am. Now, I am, of course, is the name of God. Remember when Moses said to the Lord, who shall I tell Pharaoh is sending me? He said, you tell him. I am is sending you. So what is Jesus saying? He is coming to them in the midst of the storm and he's saying, guys, don't be afraid. Be of good cheer. Remember who I am? I'm Jehovah. I'm God. See? He was using this circumstance to reveal something about himself that I'm convinced they either did not know or did not fully comprehend or believe yet. And that was that this was more than a prophet in their midst. This was God in human form. He needed to teach them that, and he picked a very interesting way to do it. But in the midst of, his, of the storm they were going through, he came to them, he encouraged them by reminding them or revealing to them who he was. We have to never forget that, you know, our Lord is God Almighty. And sometimes I think in the midst of a storm, we tend to forget that. That's why I'm going to add one more reason for storms here. For correction, perfection, for demonstration, preparation, and one more, revelation. Revelation. You see, Jesus used the storm in their life to reveal something about himself to them that they were not aware of or that they didn't realize, that he was God. Now, maybe they had heard him allude to that, Maybe they had heard him talk about it. Whether they fully comprehended it or believed it, I don't really know. I do know that Jesus used this opportunity, though, to reveal the, himself to them in the midst of the storm by telling them, look, be of good cheer, don't be afraid, I am. I'm God, remember or understand? You need to know this. If you're going to carry out the work that I'm calling you to do, you've got to know whom you serve. See, they didn't know Jesus could walk on water. They had never seen him do that before. That was quite a miracle. And they would have never seen him do that if he hadn't sent them into the storm. And if the storm hadn't brought them to the end of themselves, then he came to them and manifested himself to them in a way that they have never seen before. Very interesting point. I think that oftentimes the Lord will use a storm in our life, a trial, to let us come to the end of our rope so that he can reveal himself to us 
in a greater, more powerful way. You know, when I say that, I mean cause our awareness of His power and strength to become, man, magnified. Wow. I knew the Lord was something, but man, this is really, to, to see Him work out this, to see the miracle that He has worked out through this, man, my, I'm just awestruck at His majesty. See, these things are designed to increase our awareness of who He is, you know? These storms will oftentimes be sent our way because the Lord wants to use them to reveal to us more of His majesty, more of His power, that we would have a greater sense of trust in His ability, a deeper and more powerful desire to worship Him. See, that's the whole thing. The bigger our God is, the more we are driven to our knees to worship Him. See? That's why God does these things, because He wants to reveal His majesty to us, His awesomeness, because the only result of that is to drive us to our knees to worship Him more deeply. It says in Matthew's Gospel, when he got into the boat, after he came walking to them on the water, he got into the boat, immediately they fell on their knees and they worshipped him. And they said to him, truly, you are the Son of God. See, God used it to deepen their awareness of who he was, revealing to them something of his nature that they had not seen before. Now, I want you to remember these lessons because I think that they're very important in facing various storms that come our way. First of all, remember one thing about storms. Jesus didn't send the multitudes into the storm, did he? He sent them away. He only sent his disciples into the storm. Because, you know, all these casual, fair-weather followers that Jesus had, he couldn't send them into any storm to increase their faith. They didn't have any faith, you know. They were carnally minded, carnally motivated in following him. I mean, they were following him for all the wrong reasons. They had no faith. They were following him because of the physical, the hunger, the healings, and so on. But you see, and Jesus will deal with those people on that level, trying to bring them into the faith. But for those of us who are truly disciples of Christ, truly believers, we know that the Lord will send us into storms. We know that. I think knowing that is half the battle. A lot of Christians don't seem to know that for some strange reason. They murmur, complain. Uh, they do what Job did not do. They charge God foolishly and sin with their mouths when trials come. See, but we know that that's what's going to happen. We know that Jesus promised us storms. Secondly, while his disciples were in the midst of the storm, where was he? He was on top of the mountain watching and praying for him. That's kind of interesting to me because in the scripture, seas are often used to symbolize nations. The Antichrist came out of the, comes out of the sea, it says in Revelation 13. He comes out of the nations. A mountain oftentimes in scripture will be used symbolically to represent a kingdom. Remember Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar, the dream he had of the polymetallic image and the stone not cut with hands smote the image in its feet and it crumbled to powder, and the stone became a mountain that filled the whole earth. And when the interpretation came, that stone that grew into a mountain that filled the whole earth was the kingdom of God that was established on the earth that Jesus would bring. So from a spiritual standpoint, look at the spiritual thing that God is setting up here. He sends his disciples out onto the sea, into the nations where they were ex could experience storms. While he goes on top of the mountain, while he returns to his heavenly kingdom, and what is he doing up in heaven right now? As we're out in the nations 
going through oftentimes severe storms in our desire to obey what he has told us to do. Where is he? He's up in heaven. And the Bible says nothing in creation is hidden from his eyes, but all things are open and naked in the eyes of him with whom we must someday give an account. He sees us right now, of course. And what is he doing? He ever lives to make intercession for us. So the Lord knows exactly what we're going through. He knows exactly where we are. He's got the whole thing under control. He sees us. He's making intercession for us. See? Even as he told Peter before he went to the cross, Peter, Satan has asked that he might have you, that he might sift you as wheat. Not sure what that means, but it doesn't sound too pleasant. But I have prayed for you. And he continues to pray for us that our strength and our faith fail not. We have to understand that, though. He's in control. Thirdly, just when you think the storm is going to wipe you out, when you seem to be at the end of your ropes, at the end of your strength, it's oftentimes then that Jesus will come to you in a way you never thought possible at a time you least expect. But if you're so absorbed in the crisis, you're liable to miss him. And it says in Mark's gospel that he would have passed by them, you know. And in some sense, maybe Mark was kind of intimating to the possibility that they were so wrapped up in fighting the storm, so engrossed or in absorbed with the storm that they were facing, that here he comes walking to them and they almost didn't see him. I mean, sometimes we get so absorbed or caught up in the crisis or the trial that you know, we're, we're fighting for our lives, basically, that the Lord is coming to us, and we're, we're almost, in a sense, miss Him. We don't see Him. We don't really, uh, you know, and, and it's usually at a time when we least expect, when we've given up all hope of ever being rescued out of this trial, whatever it might be, you know. We've prayed, we've cried out, the Lord isn't here, and we feel like we're at the end of our ropes, our strength is gone, and that's it, we're going under. Suddenly, the Lord comes to us in a way we never thought possible, uh, through an avenue we never expected, see? They never expected him to come walking out in the water to him, maybe on another boat or something, I would imagine, but, you know, here he comes a way that they had no comprehension of, never expected. God will oftentimes solve the crisis through an avenue we didn't, we least expected at a time when we didn't think would happen. And finally, we need to understand that when we're facing a storm, we're not to panic. We're not to be fearful. We're to be cheerful. Because the Lord says, look, don't be afraid. I mean, be of good cheer. Why? Because remember who I am? I'm God. And if I am for you, who can be against you? If I've told you to go over, you'll never go under. He told him, get in the boat and go across the Sea of Galilee. And if Jesus tells you to go across, you're not going to go under. I don't care how bad it looks. And the Lord says to each one of us, look, where's your faith? I use these things to teach you lessons, but not to destroy you. I mean, I haven't brought you this far to let you drown now. I've got plans for your life. I'm just preparing you. I'm just teaching you things. Because I need for you to have faith in me that when I eventually bring you to the place I want you to be, you're ready. Now you're prepared to take on the ministry that I've called you to. So if there's anything we can take away from this, I think that's, that's the lesson right there. I think that in any one of our lives, maybe right now, some of you are going through things that 
you know, look so bad, and you've been struggling against this trial or this storm for so long, or if you're not right now, maybe you will be in the very near future, and you're struggling, you've cried out to the Lord, He seems like He's abandoned you, you know, He's not listening, you feel like you're all alone, and you feel like your strength is coming to an end, you feel like giving up, bailing out, you know, going under, you know, it's like, Lord, just wipe me out, just kill me, take me, Lord, I can't handle this anymore. The Lord says, look, hang in there. Don't give up. You do what I've told you to do. And when your strength has come to an end, believe me, I'll be there. I'll come to you in a way that you never thought possible. And I'll calm the storm in my time when I feel that you've learned the lesson that I want to teach you. And right away, as soon as, as, soon as Jesus stepped into the boat, it says immediately they were at their destination. God only lets the storms come for so long. He'll let us struggle for a while to teach us things, but then in the end, believe me, He'll deliver you. He'll bring you to that place where He wants to use you. What Mark doesn't record, obviously, because many believe that Mark got his information from Peter, and Peter would not have recorded this because Peter probably didn't want to draw any attention to himself, but Matthew records it. How that when Jesus came walking to them on the water, and they thought he was a ghost, and they cried out to him, or they cried out, and he said, look, don't be afraid, it's me, you know, be of good cheer. And Peter said, well, Lord, if it's really you, then let me come to you on the water. And Jesus said, well, all right, come on. And Peter took a step out of the boat and began to walk towards Jesus, and suddenly he began to look around at the waves. Of course, the wind was very strong. The waves were, no doubt, you know, several feet high. He began to look around at what he was doing. No doubt he thought, wait a minute, I'm walking on water. I can't do this. <laughs> Took his eyes off of Jesus, got his eyes on his circumstances, and began to go on. He began to sink. And he immediately prayed a very simple, basic prayer, Lord, save me. And Jesus reached out his hand and pulled him up and said, why were you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. If I've told you to come to me, I'm not going to let you drown on the way. I mean, where, where's your faith, Peter? And then it adds that this all happened to them because even though they saw the feeding of the 5,000, their hearts were hardened. You know, what does God have to do to us to get us to be open to Him and to have faith in His ability? I mean, how many miracles does God have to do in our lives before we learn the lessons of those things and trust? How many meals does He have to provide? How many crises does he have to deliver us from before we have the faith to say, Lord, I know it's a crisis that I'm facing, but you know what? You've taught me through all the other crises in my life that you're capable of delivering me and providing for me, and I'm going to have faith. And Jesus had to put them through this whole thing because their hearts were still hardened, even after he had worked all these miracles and just, you know, the day before fed the five, well, 20,000. I mean, yet they still hadn't learned the lessons. And so Jesus comes walking out to them. And, and the Peter, of course, we all love Peter because he's, we relate so well to him. Peter said, well, Lord, let me come out there too. And Jesus said, well, all right, come on. Now, you know, a lot of people find fault with Peter for that. They think, they say, you know, here's Peter. You know, always oh, got to run out ahead of himself. He's either opening his mouth out of turn, putting his foot in his mouth, or he's doing some other impetuous act. But you know what? I tell you this. I really appreciate Peter for a lot. I mean, yeah, all right. He got ahead of himself. 
He charged out, as the old saying goes, fools charge out where angels fear to tread. All right. Maybe Peter was like that to, to a certain degree. But I have to love his heart for the Lord. I mean, he's like a little kid that was always running to the Lord. He was the one that dove into the Sea of Galilee after Jesus had risen from the dead. Remember, and they were fishing and he stood on the shore uh, at morning and he said, children, have you caught any meat or fish? And they said, no. And he said, cast the net on the other side. And they did. And it was loaded with fish. And suddenly they looked at each other and said, it's the Lord. And Peter dove off into the water. He couldn't even wait for the boat to get to shore. He wanted to get to where Jesus was. And I appreciate that about Peter. I think that, that says something about him that I think we need to learn from and pray about that we have such a consuming passion to get where Jesus is at that we're willing to take steps, you know, to do the impossible if need be. Because I know that that's where Jesus is. You know, they put down Peter, some people, but you know what? At least Peter had the faith to step out of the boat. What about the other 11 guys that played it safe? No, they didn't sink, but then they never experienced walking on water either. And I'll tell you what, I'd rather sink a little bit if I could know the experience of walking on water once in a while, in a sense, if I could know the experience of doing the impossible because I was willing to take a step in faith, every man or woman of God is going to sink now and then. That's part of the growing process. Like a little kid learning to walk, they're going to fall once in a while. But the more they practice, the more they are consistent. And I think that's what learning how to walk by faith is all about. Uh, you're going to make some mistakes. You're going to sink once in a while. But God blessed Peter that he was willing to take a step in faith, you know. And for a while he did the impossible. And no doubt would have kept on doing it and walked all the way to Jesus had he just kept his eyes focused on the Lord. And that's something else we need to learn. When we step out of the boat to do the impossible, to obey something he has told us to do that goes beyond anything we're capable of doing, we better keep our eyes on him. We better draw from his strength. And if you get your eyes on the circumstances, believe me, you'll sink quickly. Every time I begin to get my eyes off the Lord, which unfortunately happens more than I would like to admit, and I begin to get my eyes on all the things going on that I know go beyond my abilities to handle and to deal with, all of a sudden I get that sickening feeling in my pit of my stomach that like I'm sinking, you know? Like all the responsibilities and all the things just are beginning to swallow you up. And you got to just cry out, Lord, save me. Lord, help me to keep my eyes on you. I can't do this. I'm walking on water being a pastor of a church. There's no way I can do this in my own strength. And the Lord says, that's right, you can't. Keep your eyes on me. I never asked you to do it in your own strength. If you try, you're going to sink. You're going to become discouraged and depressed. You're going to want to give up. Don't do it in your own strength. That's the point, I believe, of this story. We are not to do things in our own strength, but to keep our eyes on him. You know, uh, And if we do, we'll, we'll do the impossible. If we don't, you'll find real quickly you're going to go under. So God help us to understand storms. They're not pleasant, but they're needful and beneficial. And so help us to, God, help us to accept them and to handle them in the right way, respond to them properly. Because if we do, we'll learn from them and grow. As the old Arab proverb says, all sunshine makes a desert. Uh, you can't live in the sun all the time. You need some storms because they help you to grow and they help you to see the Lord in a, in, 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 in a new light in a sense at times, you know. Uh, His majesty shines through. We need to know that. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you, Lord, that 
Yes, you do send us out into storms. But they're always under your control. You see us. Even though we can't feel your presence at times, you're there. You see what we're going through. You're in complete control of the situation. You don't allow us to be tested beyond what we're able to bear. But right about the time we feel that we're going to go under, we're going to crack under the pressure. Just about the time we're ready to give up, throw in the towel, we despair of life even. It's at those times, here you come walking toward us. Here you come revealing yourself to us in a way we never thought possible at a time we least expected. And in the end, it has that incredible result of helping us to see you in a, oh, I don't know, a, a deeper way. Helping us to appreciate your majesty, uh, to be in more awe of your power, which all drives us to our knees in a deeper sense of worship and faith. Which is exactly what you're trying to do. Because if we're going to be used by you for great things, you first have to, to teach us how to weather storms and how to trust you. That if you say to us, go over, we won't go under. And it's not because you purposely abandoned us and then allow the storms to come because you don't love us. It's because you're preparing us, teaching us, molding us and shaping us for the time when you bring us to that place you want us to be at, that ministry you want us to do. And we've already been prepared by you along the way. And now we're ready to be used by you. Lord, help us that our hearts not be hard. That we not be so dull of heart that you have to constantly repeat these things before we learn the lessons you want us to learn. Help us, Lord, just to believe and trust in you that no matter what we are going through, that you're there and that you'll be with us. And if we'll just trust you, It'll work out in ways we never thought possible. And our faith will grow, and it will be an incredible experience. We just thank you now, Lord. We look, Lord, around our at our communities, and it looks pretty black. People seem beyond hope. We feel like we're struggling, struggling, struggling to make some leeway to... Fulfill the command you've given us to make disciples of all nations. And yet, Lord, it seems like we're just going backwards. It seems like sometimes like we're not getting anywhere. And we're tired, oftentimes frustrated, weary, ready to give up. Now's the time, Lord, we need to be looking for you. Now's the time. As we come to the end of our strength, I believe you're about to work. And you're about to do something so incredible, so miraculous that we will just be awestruck and we will fall on our faces and worship you. And we will be brought to a level of spirituality and a level of intimacy with you, Lord, that we've never known before. And so help us, Lord. I can relate to these disciples. I know what it's like to struggle 
to fulfill a command you've given and yet feel like you're not going anywhere, in fact, losing ground at times. But I know, Lord, that you allow these things, that you might show us your majesty, that you might reveal to us, Lord, things that we never really have understood about you. Help us to hang in there, because in a very short time, the miracle is going to happen. And we want to be there for it. We don't want to give up. Thank you, Lord. Father, we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen.